Book One, Chapter Nine of the History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The History of Pompey the Little, or The Life and Adventures of a Lapdog, by Francis Coventry. Book One, Chapter Nine. What the reader will know if he reads it. The father of this little brood, who are now in possession of our hero, was Captain Vincent of the Guards, a gentleman whose character will cost us no long description. Captain Vincent of the Guards was an exceedingly handsome man, about thirty years old, tall and well proportioned in his limbs but so entirely devoted to the contemplation of his own pretty person that he never detached his thoughts one moment from the consideration of it. Conscious of being a favorite of the ladies, among whom he was received always with eyes of affection, he thought the charms of his figure irresistible wherever he came, and seemed to show himself in all public places as an object of public admiration." You saw forever in his looks a smile of assurance, complacency, and self-applause. He appeared always to be wondering at his own accomplishments, and especially when he made a survey now and then of his dress and limbs. T'was as much to say to his company, "'Gentlemen and ladies, look on me if you can, without admiration.' The reputation of two or three affairs, which same had given him with women of fashion, still contributed to increase his vanity, and authorized him, as he thought, to bestow more time and pains on the beautifying and adoring so successful a figure. In short, after many real or pretended amours, which made him insufferably vain, he married at last a celebrated town beauty, a woman of quality, who was in all respects equal to and worthy of such a husband." Lady Betty Vincent, the wife of this gentleman, was one of those haughty nymphs of quality who presume so much on the merit of a title that they never trouble themselves to acquire any other. She was proud, expensive, insolent, and unmannerly to her inferiors, vain of her rank, and still vainer of her person, full of extravagant airs, and though exceedingly silly, conceited of an imaginary wit and smartness. As she set out in life with a full persuasion that her prodigious beauty, merit, and accomplishments must soon procure her the title of her grace, she rejected several advantageous matches that offered, because they did not in all points come up to the height of her ambition. At length, finding her charms begin to decay, in a fit of lust, disappointed pride, and opposition to her mother, with whom she had then a quarrel, she patched up a marriage with Captain Vincent of the Guards, contrary to the advice and remonstrances of all her friends and relations. As the captain had no revenue besides the income of his commission, and her ladyship's fortune did not exceed seven thousand pounds, it may be concluded, when the honeymoon of love was over, this agreeable couple did not find the matrimonial fetters sit perfectly easy upon them. To retrench in any article, 
they found it impossible. To retire into the country, still more impossible. That was horrors, death, and despair. Her ladyship could not hear of such a thing with patience. She was ready to swoon at the mention of it. And indeed the captain, who was equally attached to London, never made the proposal in earnest. What then could they do in these embarrassing circumstances? Why, they took a little house in Hedge Lane, near the bottom of the Haymarket, which, being in the centre of public diversions, served to keep them a little in countenance, and there they supported their spirits as well as they could, with reflecting that they still lived in the world, though their apartments were not so commodious as they could wish. Fettered pride is sure to turn into peevishness, and spleen is the daughter of mortified vanity. Finding themselves cramped with want, they grew uneasy, discontented, jealous of each other's extravagance, and were scarce ever alone without reproaching one another on the article of expense. The lady pouted at the captain for going to White's, and the captain recriminated on his wife for playing at brag, and then followed a long contention, which of them spent the most money. To complete their misfortunes, her ladyship took to breeding, which introduced a thousand new expenses, and they must absolutely have starved in the midst of pride and vanity, had they not been seasonably relieved now and then by some handsome presents from Lady Betty's mother, my old lady Harridan, who was still alive and in the possession of a considerable jointure. The devotion which the captain paid to his beautiful figure has already been described, nor was her ladyship one jot behind him in idolizing and adoring her own charms. She prided herself in a more particular manner on the lovely bloom and charming delicacy of her complexion, which had procured her the envy of one sex and the admiration of the other, though perhaps if her enviers and admirers had known the following little story, both these passions would have considerably abated in them. It was our hero's custom, whenever he came into a new family, to gratify his curiosity as soon as possible with a general survey of the house. On his arrival here, his little owners were so fond of him the first day that they lugged him about in their arms and never permitted him to stray one moment out of their sights. But being left more at his own liberty the next morning, he thought it was then a convenient time for making his tour. After examining all the rooms above ground, he descended intrepidly into the kitchen and began to look about sharp for breakfast. For to say the truth, he had hitherto met with very thin commons in his new apartments. At last a blue and white dish, which stood on the dresser, presented itself to his eye. This immediately he determined to be lawful prey, and perceiving nobody present to interrupt him, he boldly made a spring at it. But happening unluckily to leap against the dish, down it came and its contents ran about the kitchen. Scarce had this happened when my lady's maid appeared below stairs and began to scream out in a very shrill accent, Why, who has done this now? I'll be whipped if this audacious little dog has not been and thrown down my lady's backside's breakfast, after which she fell very severely on the cook, who now entered the kitchen and began to reprimand her in a very authoritative tone for not taking more care of her dressers. 
but let the pothecary, added she, come and mix up his nastiness himself, and he will, for deuce fetch me if I'll wait on her ladyship's backside in this manner. If she will have her clisters, let the clister-pipe doctor come and minister them himself, and not put me to her filthy offices. Oh, Lord, bless us! Well, rather than be at all this pains for a complexion, I'd be as brown as a berry all my lifetime. The finest flowers, I have heard say, are raised from dung, and perhaps it may be so. I am sure tis so at our house, for my lady takes physic twice a week, and treats her backside with a clister once a fortnight, and all this to preserve a complexion. While the waiting gentlewoman was haranguing thus at the expense of her mistress, the captain's valet also came into the kitchen, and hearing his fellow-servant very loud and vociferous, inquired what was the matter. Matter, cries she, matter enough of conscience. Don't you see there that plaguy little devil of a dog has been and flung down my lady's backside's breakfast? Bless us, a prodigious disaster indeed, replied the valet. Why, what shall we do now, Mrs. Minkin? I'm afraid your lady's complexion will want its bloom today. Hang her complexion, said Abigail. I wish her complexion was at the bottom of her own closed stool. She need be so generous to her backside indeed. I am sure she is not so over and above generous to her servants and her tradesfolks. True, cries the valet. If she would treat us with a breakfast now and then, as well as her backside, methinks it would not be amiss, for deuce take me, if I ever saw such housekeeping in any family that ever I lived in in my days. They dress plaguy fine, both of them, and cut a figure abroad, while their servants are starving at home. Yes, yes, said Mrs. Minikin. Tis all show and no substance at our house. There's your pretty master, the captain, has been smugging up his pretty face and cleaning his teeth for this hour before the looking-glass this morning. I wonder he does not clister for a complexion, too. Though, thank heaven, he's coxcomb enough already, and wants no addition to his pride. He seems to think that no woman can look him in the face without falling in love with him, with his black solitaire, and his white teeth, and his frizzled hair, and his fopperies. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Well, every one to their liking. But hang me if I would not marry a monkey as soon as such a powdered scaramouche, were I a woman of quality. Get out, you little nasty devil of a dog. Hang me if I won't brain you. And let the little vixens, your mistresses, say what they please. Having said this, she set out full of rage in pursuit of poor Pompey, who took to his feet with great precipitation and fled for his life. But not being nimble enough, he was overtaken and smarted severely for the trespass he had committed. To say the truth, he soon began to find himself very unhappily situated in this family. For wretched are all those animals that become the favorites of children. At first, indeed, he suffered only the barbarity of their kindness, and was persecuted with no other cruelties than what arose from their extravagant love of him. But when the date of his favor began to expire, and it did not continue long, he was then taught to feel how much severer their hate could be than their fondness. He had indeed, from the first, two or three dreadful presages of what might happen to him, for he had seen with his own eyes the two kittens, his playfellows, 
drowned for some misdemeanor that they had been guilty of, and the magpie's head chopped off with the greatest passion for daring to peck a piece of plum cake that lay in the window without permission, which instances of cruelty were sufficient to warn him, if he had had any foresight, of what might afterwards happen to him. But he was not let long to entertain himself with conjectures before he felt in person and in reality the mischievous disposition of these little tyrants. Sometimes they took it into their heads that he was full of fleas, and then he was soused in a tub of water till he was almost dead, in order to kill the vermin that inhabited the hair of his body. At other times he was set on his hinder legs with a book before his eyes, and ordered to read his lesson, which, not being able to perform, they whipped him till he howled, and then chastised him the more for daring to be sensible of pain. Much of this treatment did he undergo, often wishing himself restored to the arms of Lady Tempest, when fortune, taking pity of his calamities, once more resolved to change his lodgings and deliver him from this house of inquisition. End of Book One, Chapter Nine Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas